Take your Bibles this morning and go with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 12, as we turn there. I want to focus in on a passage found in Matthew 12, and we'll look at verse 38 through verse 42. That'll be our main text today as we look at the Scriptures. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, it says this, Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and he said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will actually rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. It's amazing what this is going on with Jesus and the disciples, or Jesus and actually the Pharisees, the disciples would have been present as well. But it's interesting to kind of watch this this confrontation. I call this a confrontation, and you're going to see that, I think, as we seek to unfold this for you. But let me pray, and we'll begin this morning. Father, I want to thank you so much for my friends here. And I ask God your rich blessings upon them. I know that those blessings come when we humble ourselves and we submit ourselves to the Scriptures and to what you have for us. Lord, to know that, that in this room there are some who are truly in Christ. Lord, in order to know that not everyone who calls himself a Christian is truly a Christian. Lord, we know that we can go to churches that would be clear cults around the, um, you could say, the globe even today. And there would be many that would call themselves Christians. And clearly, according to Scripture, they're not. Lord, you even tell us in your word that many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy? Didn't we even do good works? And you will say to them, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I don't know you. Lord, our life should back up the message if we've been truly born from God. So God, I pray for anyone who is listening to this, Lord, whether it be in this room or whether through live stream, Lord, I pray for their souls. I pray for those who uh, may later listen to this on a, on a message, maybe through sermon audio or something else, or that you would use this message, Lord, to bring glory to your name, that people would see you truly are the God of mercy, the God of all grace. So thank you, God, for what you're going to do. Please empower me now. Bless our time together. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. As we look at this passage of Scripture, my first thought is actually something kind of away from this for a moment, and we'll come right back to it. <clears throat> but I wonder... What you think about when I say the date, April 15th, what comes to your mind when I say April 15th? What do you think of? You know, tax day, you bunch of downers. No, I'm just kidding. That probably is what most people think of in our culture. When you think of April 15th, you think of tax day. Although a little over a hundred years ago on that date, something major happened. It was actually late in the evening hours on the 14th of April of 1912, that the greatest passenger cruise liner, many of you know what I'm talking about now, the Titanic struck an iceberg at 11.39 in the evening. Um, And then two hours and 40 minutes later, it sunk, killing right around 1,500 people. Um, It was such a massive uh, ordeal within the culture that the shock waves really went around the globe as people heard about the ship, the Titanic, sinking because it was a massive ship. Actually, the size of the ship was was pretty crazy because it was it was 882 and a half feet long. That that is that's really long. When you think about a football field, you know, including the end zones, you know, you've got the idea of 360 feet. But if you don't have the end zones and you got about 100, now you're talking about almost like three football fields in a sense, getting close to 900 feet long that this boat would have been. It was 80. It was actually 92 and a half, almost 100 feet wide, and from base to the top of the stacks, it went up 175 feet. And this is a big cruise liner. At that time, it carried. 2,224 people weighed 52,000 tons. I mean, this was a massive, massive ship. But actually, it's not just the size of it. The beauty was really amazing as well because the beauty of that ship, when you think of the, the ship, it actually had a swimming pool on it. Now, I noticed when I said that, no one really even kind of gave me a, you know, like, <gasps> you know. But back then, it would have been. Now, again, modern day, you've got wave pools, you know, you've got, you've got lazy rivers on the ships now and zip lines and driving ranges, climbing walls and stuff like that. Okay, I get that. But back then, to have a swimming pool on the ship was a big, big deal. 
Again, this is of 1912. Not only did it have that, it had a dining saloon. You could go and you could kind of eat on the ship in a nice, really nice place. Actually, had four elevators. Again, even then, not, it's like unheard of on a ship, uh, but had four elevators. And it even had parlor suites. You could get kind of one of the exclusive suites in that day and age. And that parlor suite would cost you $4,350. Now, <clears throat> for those of you who kind of go, eh, you know, chump change. Well, let me just kind of let me just tell you that if you did it in our modern day, that would be right around $120,000 for a parlor suite. And you're going, <clears throat> now again, some of you might be like, that's still chump change, Jeremy, but not me. Okay, that's pretty crazy. Um, Actually, some even said because the ship was so large, you know, that, this, that even God himself couldn't even sink this ship. We've kind of heard that phrase maybe through the years. I would first of all say, you better be careful what you say. Don't say things like that. But the other side of it would be as you start to search it out historically who really said that, and it's really kind of hard to find really who said that. And so in many ways, though, that was the thought for sure. It was such a massive, massive cruise liner that God himself couldn't even sink this ship. Actually, the ship didn't have to go down that day. I mean, really, in one sense, it had six warnings, clear warnings. Uh, actually, the, the last warning came to the radio operator, and he replied back, and he said this. He said, shut up, shut up, I'm working. Actually, you could say just as the Titanic had warnings, so we also have clear warnings. God, who is the God of mercy, would give mankind warnings and warnings of judgment to come. And that's God and His kindness. And I would call that kindness because it wouldn't make any sense if you had a neighbor next door, their house caught fire, and you see them moving very slowly in the house, knowing now they don't even know their house is on fire. What would you do? You go over and start probably banging on their door. And as you bang on the door, they might even, and you might even say, get out, get out. Your house is on fire. Now, they might even look at you and say, why are you yelling at me? No, your house is on fire. Get out. And let's just say the flames kind of caught that pretty fast, but they got out and it burns. The house is burnt down. The truth is they would look at you in tears, hugging you and saying, thank you. You saved my life. It's merciful to warn people. It's kind. It's actually loving to warn people. And actually, you see here is the God of mercy in this passage of Scripture and His kindness through His Son, Jesus Christ, is clearly giving a warning to all mankind and specifically to the scribes and Pharisees as they hear this. So when we look at this passage of Scripture, it's kind of an interesting passage initially because when you first start to read it, you realize in verse 38, if you're not careful you might kind of glance over and forget that this is, this is actually a strong rebuke. Because at first they say to, to Jesus, it says in verse 38, that some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now that kind of seems like a legitimate kind of question, doesn't it? I mean, in one sense you're going, I don't want to aimlessly or blindly follow somebody. I mean, if he's really the Messiah, I mean, I need to understand if you really are a Messiah, kind of show me, you know. And can I just tell you this, that God throughout history in his kindness has always been willing to give mankind warnings and signs. Actually, it's interesting because when you begin to go historically and you consider certain people, I think of Cornelius you know, people sometimes have said, Jeremy, what about the person, you know, who, who's, you know, really wants to be saved, but they're in the heart of Africa somewhere in a tribe somewhere and they've never heard. I'd say, well, there's a couple of excuses with that. And one thing would be this. Clearly, according to the Bible, they have general revelation. In other words, you look around and you see creation and realize right away there is a creator, okay? Um, even somewhat pagan cultures realizes there's got to be a pagan, there's got to be some kind of God of some sort. Okay, so we get that. But you wouldn't know the true God of creation in a real way apart from His special revelation, His Word. And you could say again, well, what about the person who's never heard? And I would say, well, that's why God's given us all a commission, hasn't He, to go tell people. The other side of it is this, is anybody who really is earnestly seeking that means God is at work. And what does God always do? God always sends a missionary. He always sends somebody. I would also remind you, according to Scripture, the Bible says there are none that seeketh after God. We all go away. We all go astray. So naturally, we don't. 
But if a person is genuinely seeking, God does. He provides a sign. He he shows the way. I think of Cornelius in the scripture who seemed to be a God-fearer, but he wasn't really saved yet. And then what happens? God sends Peter to give him clarity of the gospel, and he gets saved, you could say. So the, the truth is, we see this. How many of you have ever been to Hawaii? Anyone ever been to Hawaii in here? Okay, so on the big island of Hawaii, interestingly enough, I remember historically reading about this and doing some study, but do you realize at one point in time, the largest church, the gospel-preaching, evangelical style of church in, in the world was on the big island? It's interesting because if you go back historically, there's this king that they had, King Kamehameha, you know, King Kamehameha. And man, what a big dude. And, and yet, in one sense, they kind of revere him. But do you know how he unified the islands, don't you? By conquering and killing people. That's how he unified them. And then, sure enough, he kind of was this way. Actually, the worship was such pagan worship that they would even offer sometimes even human sacrifices back in the day. There were finally some people who really began to cry out to God to say, we don't even know you, but please reveal yourself to us. This cannot be the right way. So what happened is actually God uh, begins to work on a heart of a person. One of the persons actually made this claim. I had a dream. Again, there is no Bible. So you see sometimes with no Bible, God does do some unique things sometimes. Well, this is one of those times. This guy says, I have this dream. I have this dream that these, these people will come and they will actually land here. They will tell us at this rock, this spot on the island, and they will tell us the way. They will, they will help us know the right way of God. And uh, sure enough, months later, guess who lands there? A ship with missionaries. And the missionaries begin to preach the gospel and all these islanders start getting saved. Even to the point of the queen. And the queen at one point even overlooked, in a sense, came up over to where the volcano was, the mouth of the volcano, and even defied Pele, threw stuff into the mouth of the volcano and said, I defy you, Pele, because of, and if, you're really the, if you're really the way, then kill us, but I, I defy you in the name of Christ. And uh, she had turned to Christ. Actually, so many people did. As I said before, one of the largest uh, evangelical churches in the world was there. Now, to this day, you wouldn't know that as you visit the islands. Uh, time has gone by. But as I say all this to say, clearly God can g- give signs. He does that. But it's interesting when you begin to look at these people, you realize this is a confrontation and it begins, number one, with a sinful request. Because when they're asking for a sign, you have to look back and say, well, what have they been given all the re- already? And for them to ask this at this moment shows not that they really were earnest and interested. They were actually clearly rejecting Messiah. So I want you to back up a little bit. Go to chapter 11 for a second. You can see this. Because <clears throat> we see Jesus constantly doing so many miracles after miracles. Look at verse 2 of chapter 11. It says, And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples. And he said to, said to him, Are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? Now, again, this is John the Baptist. Can I tell you, this actually encourages my faith in a real way. Because do you ever get discouraged in your faith? Do you ever seem to kind of fall down sometimes in your faith in one sense too? It even struggles maybe. I would say, sure, but true believers will never ultimately fall away, according to Scripture. But interestingly enough, here's a, here he seems to be struggling. I mean, he's in prison. I mean, he's baptized Jesus in the past. I mean, he, he heard the voice, you know, from heaven. He saw what looked like almost like a dove come to, you know, I mean, this is, this is John the Baptist. This is the cousin. This is the forerunner. This is, this is amazing. He was a specially born person, remember, but he's struggling and maybe because he's in prison and he's, and he's not thinking it's supposed to be this way. But notice what Jesus said to those who asked him this, verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you, you hear and see. Go tell John this. The blind see, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Go tell him what you saw. Go tell him what you're hearing. Clearly that will encourage his faith. And one sense, he's doing all these miracles. Actually, go to, go to the same chapter. Look at verse 20. In verse 20 and verse 21, you kind of see this kind of like in a line there. Verse 20 says, And he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works, he's doing a lot of crazy things here, a lot of, a lot of miracles, had been done because they did not repent. That was the problem with mankind. That's always the problem. 
they don't repent. Notice verse 21. He said to them, Woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, that they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Then he rebukes another city. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to hell or Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say, that, I say to you that it shall be more tolerable in the land of Sodom than in the day of judgment than for you. Why is he saying this? They're seeing all these miracle after miracle after miracle clearly from Messiah, and they're not repenting. Go even further, actually, as you begin to consider these things. Go to chapter 12 and look at, and look at verse 9 for a minute. Well, watch this. This is now when he departed from there. This is Jesus. He went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. So a man's arm was all shrunken in. You've probably seen people sometimes with a, kind of a withered hand with a small, small little arm of some sort. And he said to him, he asked him, saying, the people, he said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? It's interesting because, because they, they're the ones asking him this. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Why did they ask him that? Look at the end of verse, verse 10. Why did they ask him that? that they might accuse him. The whole point is that they had already rejecting, re- rejected him. They want to accuse him because they had their own man-made Sabbath rules that weren't biblical at all. Plus, who is the Lord of the Sabbath? It's clearly the Messiah. He can do whatever he wants to do in that sense too. But sure enough, their whole point is that they can accuse him. So then he said to the man, he said to them, he said, what man is there among you who has one sheep, if he falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? I mean, you'll rescue your own sheep, won't you? Your own animal on the Sabbath. And they all would have agreed. But he says, how much more value is a man than a sheep? I mean, therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And it was restored as whole as the other. Now, you can imagine that in front of everybody. You know, you've got a crowd of people, and Jesus calls up this man with a withered hand. And he's standing there, and he says, so is it lawful or not? And he kind of teaches him, and then all of a sudden, you know, he says, all right, stretch out your hand. And now here's this guy with this little hand, and all of a sudden, you watch the guy probably look down at his own hand, and he sees his fingers start to open up, his hands start to open up, his arms start to extend, and now all of a sudden, it's like it's a useful arm. I mean, what do you think he's doing? What do you think his face looks like? I mean, he's got the biggest smile on his face, and he's like, yeah! I mean, he's probably cheering, and, and people are like, whoa! And they're watching this with their own eyes. I mean, you just watched a miracle be performed by Messiah in front of you at that moment? I mean, a withered hand? That's crazy! Everyone's excited, huh? Not everyone. Actually, if you look close, look at verse 14. After he healed them, what happened? Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. We're going to kill him. We want him dead. You go further, actually, even within that passage, verse 15, when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there and great multitudes followed him. And what did he do to them? And he healed them all. He is a miracle worker of miracle workers. Actually, look at verse 22. Then one one was brought to him who was demon possessed. He was blind and he was mute and he healed him. So that the blind and the mute man both spoke and he saw. I mean, that's crazy. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? I mean, that's a reference to Messiah. Could this be? This is, it's got to be Messiah for him to do all these miracles and do these things. But notice again, the Pharisees, what did they say? Verse 24, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. I mean, Jesus even went on to say, excuse me? (laughs) Kind of like, uh, really? I mean, if that's the case, I mean, that doesn't make any sense. A kingdom divided against itself doesn't make any sense. Plus, if that's the case and you're saying, I'm doing this, my question is, when your people supposedly cast out demons, then whose power do they use? You know, if you want to really kind of figure this out again, let's turn it back on you for a moment here. 
The reality is they're just clearly rejecting. So then in verse 38 of that same chapter, our text, when some, then some of the Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees answered saying, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Remember, they want him dead. They don't care about a sign. So you can imagine the sarcasm of just like, you know, uh, hey, good master, hey, teacher. Okay, they don't even believe that. Uh, show us a sign. We want to see a sign from you. It's all sarcasm. It's such a lie. Nothing could give them proof enough. As you begin to consider this, its idea is we want proof. Show us a sign. I mean, if you're a Messiah, give us proof. Okay, that's kind of silly in this sense, because what did Jesus do? Jesus, he heals the sick. He makes the blind see. He walks on water. He calms a storm with his voice, remember? And the disciples were even freaking out about that. I mean, who is this that can even the winds and the waves can obey him? He casts out demons. He feeds 5,000. If you include women and children, he fed 15 to 20,000 with five loaves and two fish. Okay, that's pretty radical. And he raised the dead on multiple occasions. Okay, you want proof. What more proof do you need? And even the book of John tells you he did so many miracles that the books on the world at the time could not even contain all the things that he did. In other words, he's such a miracle worker. What do you mean you want proof? They didn't need proof. You know what they needed to do? They needed to repent. They'd already seen proof. They already had proof. Their their simple need was repentance and faith in Christ alone. Actually, can I also remind you, because I think we consider sometimes and say, well, we just had, if you're just a massive sign, that's exactly what, what was told to, you know, when Jesus taught about the rich man and Lazarus. Remember that story? Because he's telling the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man who dies. He's got all this money, but he dies and, and he's never repented. He dies and he's in hell. Remember the, remember the poor man Lazarus enters in the presence of God, Jesus teaches in Luke 16. And what does he teach about that? From, well, you don't go from one to the other. So remember, he says, hey, send Lazarus, even just to dip the tip of his finger and touch my tongue, I'm in torments. That's what the rich man wants. And, and yet he says, no, it, you can't go from one to the other. Well, then send him back from the dead to warn my brothers. I don't want them going to this place. And what is the, what's the answer? No, actually, they have... Moses and the prophets, they have the Old Testament. If they don't listen to the scriptures, then they won't repent if someone comes back from the dead. I mean, the reality is, remember, Jesus raised a literal Lazarus from the dead. And what did, they, what did the people want? The people wanted him dead again. <laughs> and then the risen Christ, and they want him dead again. You know what I'm saying? So the point is, it's not, it's not proof like that. It's the heartbeat of mankind. They had plenty of proof. And in many ways, I would say this. So do you. I mean, you're like one click away on the internet to get the gospel clearly. We, we need proof, though. I mean, I, it doesn't make any sense. And that's the heartbeat of, in many ways, unbelief. And again, as you look at this, verse 38, you know, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. This is a sinful request. I would not only call it a sinful request, I call it a stupid request. Because again, he's doing so many miracles, show us a sign. I'm like, are you kidding me? What, what else does he need to do? So in one sense, this is a confrontation that begins with a sinful request. Number two, though, you see it followed by a, actually a scathing rebuke. You, interestingly enough, Jesus is not always this harsh with people. But to the unbelief of a person like a Pharisee who would have so much revelation, many of the Pharisees had Old Testament books memorized. Not all of them, but that's a lot. I mean, that's crazy to think about how much knowledge they would have even of Messiah. But notice verse 39, what does Jesus say to them? And he answered and he said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Interesting. He's like, you want a sign? No sign is going to be given to you. Well, except for one. It's going to be the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, interestingly enough, notice what it says. First, Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, he's making a connection that's an unusual one that I don't think you naturally would kind of make. 
But do you know the story of Jonah? Do you remember that story? You know, I think most people, when they think of Jonah and the whale, they think of the whale. Like, it's all about the big fish. It's like, wow, the whale, you know. And like little kids' books, you know, that deal with that. It's kind of like, what's the whole emphasis? It's like the whale. It's because of the whale. And can I tell you, you go back and read Jonah, it's really not about the whale. It's about a big God who's in perfect control, even to the minutest details within life, who is a very merciful and rescuing God. But you have this whole idea of you're going to get one sign, you'll see it clearly. It's a sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, remember the story of Jonah. Jonah was called to go from where he was to go up to Nineveh, some 500 miles, to make his way there and to preach the message that God gave him to preach to the Ninevites. But, but Jonah didn't do that. Instead of going 500 miles northeast, he goes south. West, and I'm not talking about the airlines, you know what I'm saying? And he gets on a boat there and he pays the fare. And as he pays the fare, he even kind of tells them, you know, I'm running from God, you know, in a sense, too. But if you're a pagan and you're collecting money and the guy tells you this, aren't you, what are you doing? You're going to say, I don't really care. Give me your money next, you know what I mean? And get on the boat. So that's what's going on. And he goes in the boat. And what does he do? He's running from God and everything seems to be going his way. I mean, he's had the money so far. God's not stopped him so far. He, just, he hasn't been killed or anything. This is like, this is like, you know, sometimes when you do evil or you go that route, you seem to run from God. It might initially think, oh, I'm kind of getting away with this. You know, there's no big deal. He gets on the boat and then he goes and he falls asleep. He's asleep in the boat. Do you remember anyone else who fell asleep in the boat and a raging storm happened? Who's that? Jesus. Jesus was not falling asleep because he was running away from God. He was exhausted because he was doing the very will of God. Here's Jonah the opposite way. I mean, he's exhausted. He's run from God. He's, he's there. He's asleep. And then a massive storm. God sends a storm, raging storm. And what happens within the storm? It's like they're, they're, they're you know, throwing everything overboard to try to you know, lighten the load. And they're going to die. I mean, we're going to die. This is, this, is a kill, this is a crazy storm. And then they go to him and they find him sleeping. Wake up, you sleeper. You know, what are you doing? You know, and cry out to your God. We've all been crying out to our God. It was like an ecumenical prayer meeting. No one was getting hurt of anything, you know. But it's like, sure enough, we're, I'll tell you the problem, he says, the problem is me. I'm running from God. I mean, I already told you that before. And actually, not only that, if you just pick me up and throw me overboard, your woes will stop. You know, you'll, you'll, I mean, have you ever thought about how stupid that request is? Like, why don't you go and jump overboard? Why do we have to pick you up and throw you overboard? Are you kidding me? If you're really the problem. But it's interesting because in their own culture, they didn't believe in suicide. You didn't take your own life. It was God's plan. It was God's will. So in one sense, you guys do this to me. And you're, they, even tried to, they even tried more and more and crying out and all different things. But, but sure enough, what do they do? They finally say, okay, here it is. And they even cry out to God. God, we don't even know you in a sense. But if this is true, please don't, if it's innocent blood. And they throw him overboard. And once he hits the water and starts going down, what happens to the storm? It stops. I mean, the freaking every, whoa, this, this is true. This really was a prophet of God and what he told us. And what did they start doing? They started to actually make sacrifices to the one true God, paying vows to him. In other words, committing themselves to the one true God as much as they knew. What I'm saying is this, revival breaks out, a great awakening breaks out on this ship. That's crazy. And the prophet goes down, down, down. And what happens? Sure enough, God sends a fish, a big one, and he swallows him. And then after three days, interestingly enough, if you read chapter 2 of Jonah, you'll read the prayer that eventually happens. He begins to cry out to the Lord to say, I was wrong in that sense. And, and um, seems like a seemingly a prayer of somewhat of repentance, of deliverance. He's looking to God. And God commands the fish to spit him out after three days. And what happens? The fish goes, bleh. 
Now, you can imagine being swallowed and being pulled into that. So if you're already thinking of food right now, you know, so you think of the journey of food in your throat as you chew it up, and then you, you know, you swallow it. Now, there's a big fish, or he's just swallowing, oh, and he's going through the stuff. I don't know, to work his way down the esophagus and to kind of be smushed in there to get into that spot. How big was the spot? Was it big enough for him to kind of stand up when they walk around? Was it, you know, I don't, it didn't seem to be, but was it just big enough for he had, you know, air to breathe within like a, you know, small capsule. So, so I, we don't know, but I do know this. It would be clearly pitch dark. He couldn't see anything. There's fluid in there from everything else. And so that's the nastiness of the stomach acids and everything within that. And for three days, and then he cries out to God. And now God's, God commands a fish to spit him up and he spits him up on dry land, the scripture said. So this must have been almost like projectile vomiting. I mean, you thought the way into the boat, into the stomach was bad. Now he's coming out really bad. You know, and it's, I mean, and he's on dry land, the scripture says at this point. And now God tells him the second time, go to Nineveh, preach to the city that I told you to. You know, and he says, yes, sir, like I will do that. And he probably never took a bath ever again, never came anywhere near water for the rest of his life. Seriously, because that was the, I wouldn't, he wouldn't have wished that upon his worst enemy in one sense. But he goes and he preaches a short message. Basically, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That was the message. And the people of Nineveh, what they do? They respond in humility. It's crazy because these people of Nineveh were the conquering nation of the day. I mean, the, the king of Nineveh would be like king of kings and to lay aside his own robe and put on sackcloth and cover himself in ashes and for all the people to do this, even down to their animals, just, just like no one eat, just cry out to God. Who knows if he'll be merciful and rescue us? We don't know. They had little revelation, very little. Think about what you have. Think about what kind of revelation we have, the completed canon of Scripture. They had a small message, eight words long from this Really ugly looking, probably preacher at the time, because again, his skin's probably bleached, his hair's bleached. Does he even have any more hair? I mean, what the stench could not, how do you get that stench out of it? Even if you put different clothes on, you just got, you're going to stink. I mean, this is crazy. And yet these people responded to this and the Lord rescued so many people. And in many ways, again, how much revelation do they have? Well, very little. So Jesus' rebuke is kind of like, okay, you have proof. Here's your proof. Go back to Jonah and consider Jonah and consider what the people of Nineveh did. Look at verse 39 closely. No sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Verse 40, and just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You want to see, you want to see a person come back from the dead? He's going to come back. It's me and it's going to happen real soon. I mean, then you look at this. Now, I would say you could get hung up. In one sense, he's saying, look at Jonah. Jonah points to Jesus in the resurrection. No one would naturally connect that initially, but Jesus is making the connection for you clearly. And then you look at this and go, you know, three days and three nights. Well, wait a second, Jeremy. I mean, if that's the case, it couldn't have been a Friday, could it? I mean, because wasn't it Sunday? And you backtrack, you know, Saturday, Friday. Wait a second, maybe it was Thursday. Maybe it was Friday. No, maybe it was Wednesday. No, it's Friday. It's Wednesday. It's Thursday. And the whole point is, can I just tell you, for one thing, you do have some cultural issues in this sense. How do their days even begin? Because their days are different. They, they look at their own, their own cultures. I mean, even when you read the Old Testament in Genesis, you read, in the evening and the morning was the first day excuse me, like that? we don't talk like that. It's the morning and the evening, you know, we look at it differently. That's what's interesting. Even on sundown, what that mean? That was their next day. So I would suggest to you in this one sense, the way it's being placed here, even the day and the night, there's elements of literal scripture. Sure, you always take scripture literally, unless there are times you want to look at scripture too and realize culturally that's a little bit different as the way they spoke. They could use the same thing. Like, and I say it this way, in the fall, we were in, we were in uh, Pennsylvania at one point, and we took a day trip. We went to the day and went to New York City on an off day. Now, if I say I went to New York City for a day, what does that mean? Well, it could mean 24 hours, but it might mean for a couple hours in the afternoon. It could mean for the overwhelming majority part of that day. 
But to say, I took a day and I spent it there, that's how we speak. And in many ways here, can I tell you, don't get hung up. We know it was three days. That's the whole point. I mean, this happened. And depending on how you want to look at even their own culture. And so my whole point is simply saying to you is this. If you want a sign, the resurrection is like the clearest sign. Look at Jonah because Jonah points to Jesus in the resurrection. But then he doesn't stop there. Look at verse 41. The men of Nineveh. These are the people of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Because what did they do? They repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. Consider the people of Nineveh. Now, some have looked at Jonah and the story of Jonah and said, well, Jeremy, you know that's not a real story. That's like a fairy tale kind of a legend. And I'd say, well, the problem with the legend idea is that Jesus made it clear that, no, they will rise up in the judgment. And how can people who are legends and phony rise up in the judgment? They can't, okay? So the reality is, no, your own thinking is wrong unless you want to go against Jesus. And I would suggest you never do that, okay? So clearly, here are these people who actually responded. How much revelation did the people of Nineveh have? And so in many ways, look at Jonah, learn from the Ninevites, but there's also another illustration he gives in verse, 20, verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, there's a greater than Solomon who's here. He's telling them this. And so now wait a second, as you look at this, the queen of the south. Who would this be? Does anyone remember the, the queen? Sheba. The queen of Sheba. It's the queen of Sheba. And she had heard about the wisdom of Solomon back in the day. I mean, how significant that was. So, so she took a long journey. She's kind of like in the heart of Africa. And said so she's making her way. I mean, and again, in their mindset, the, the, the ends of the earth, that's where she's coming from. And she's making a massive journey. She could die in the journey. And she goes there to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Now, what kind of questions would she ask him? Now, for one thing, she's bringing him all kinds of goods. Remember, goods and money. And she's saying, hey, I want to present this to you. And he's kind of like, oh, thanks, but I don't really need any of that, you know, in a sense. And so what happens? I mean, by the time she's going to leave him, she's going to go back with so much more than she ever came with. You know, he's kind of like, ah, thanks for the kind of gift. Let me give you a serious gift, you know, <laughs> you know, and, and he gave her a bunch of stuff. But interestingly enough, if you were there and you were the king or the queen of your nation, and you were trying to figure out, and you talk to this guy, and every answer, like every question you ask, he has a, an amazing answer for it. I mean, it's kind of like, what questions would she have asked? Would she have said, you know, how do you run this segment of the economy? And he'd say, well, that's, that's really simple. Let me just kind of tell you, here's what you need to be doing. You need to do this, 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 and this, and this. You know, this would be the ultimate Google, you know what I mean? Like in a sense, I mean, you're like, are you kidding me? I can find answers here and I've got amazing answers. And she's asking about everything. She's to the point, the scripture even says, it's like, it, it's like her own breath was taken away by what she's seen. She's just going, this is amazing. And do you think at one point she would have said, hey, what's that structure, that amazing structure over there? Oh, I'll tell you what that is. It's the temple to Jehovah, to Yahweh. You know all those sacrifices that we do in, these, in this temple? You know why we do? There's going to be a once-for-all sacrifice that's coming. There will be actually the greatest king of kings who will come one day. There will be, again, a Messiah. And again, how could she rise up in the judgment if she didn't come to know the Messiah? So there's an element of here. She's asking all kinds of questions, and she's getting far more than she even thought. She's coming away as a true believer because she's going to rise up in the judgment with the generation and condemn it. She came from the ends of there just to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Now, again, that's crazy travel to hear the wisdom of Solomon. I would suggest to you, I don't know if you should pat yourself on the back for coming to church today. Like, Jeremy, <laughs> I drove all the way from Hutto, you know? <laughs> Actually, I, I, I drove 20 miles, Jeremy. I drove 40 miles to get to church. And I'd be like, hey, 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 you know, because in one sense, 
So you drove in your heated vehicle, you know, with AC, if you wanted that, because it got a little too muggy maybe this morning, you know, you want to kind of turn that on, you know, you, you could listen to the tune, you could do whatever you want in your posh, you know, and you're, and you're, you're like so excited that you pat yourself on the back. I came. She could have died on her journey just to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And Jesus says to her at the end of that, and indeed a greater then Solomon is right here in front of you. I mean, this is the king of kings. I mean, he's right there, the greatest king. Verse 41, a greater than Jonah is here. You think of the prophet Jonah, and yet God, how he used him, and you've got, you've got like maybe half a million people that came to Christ, and it says that it came to know God in a short amount of time. That's crazy, isn't it? I mean, I would, oh, that would be awesome that God would use us, you know, in some way. And yet a greater prophet than Jonah. Actually... Even earlier in that passage in verse 6 of chapter 12, Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. He's the greatest prophet, priest, king, sacrifice. This is Messiah. I mean, what kind of proof do they need? In one sense, you could say this. Jesus responds with a scathing rebuke. You want proof? You have proof. And not only that, I would say this as in conclusion, I would say maybe point number three as I'm saying this, but I would simply say this, for us as listeners and for them as listeners, it requires a serious response. So what would that be? Well, for a sinner who really is going to come to Christ, what needs to happen? They need to reject the world's wisdom for God's wisdom. In other words, the world will tell you one thing, but you've got to reject it all for God's wisdom. What does the world say? Oh, no, God didn't create this world. It was a big bang, and it's some serious wisdom, you know. A big bang made all this, an explosion, and out pops a perfectly ordered universe. Like, have you ever blown up anything, even as a kid, blown up with firecrackers or something? I mean, you blow up something, you don't get order, you get chaos, And then you ask them, you know, with all their wisdom, so where did the Big Bang come from? And they go, "Uh, yeah, okay. Or you can look at the world and see the intelligent design clearly that there's an intelligent designer. Okay, hello. But in order for a person to truly come to Christ, what do you have to do? You have to reject the world's wisdom for God's wisdom. You actually then need to repent of your sins. It's, it's the idea of it's, it's not a work that you do. It's a change of mind that leads to a whole change of direction in life. In other words, you're saying, I don't want my sin. I want Messiah. And you, you turn to Christ alone. Repentance. And actually, you then look by faith to Jesus Christ. You trust in the Messiah. You know, some people say, well, I believe in Jesus. And I'd say, well, great. So do the demons. But it's not believing like what we think. It's not just a mental belief. It's actually a trusting in. It's a believing upon the one who can save you. And that's the difference. A turning from sin to the Messiah, trusting alone in Christ alone to be saved. When a person does it, when a sinner really does that, what happens? Then the sinner is turned into a saint. He's made a saint by God. Now, for those of you who that's happened to you, we would all be grateful and say, praise God for a saving work. But we'd also kind of say, well, I mean, practically, I don't feel like I'm a saint. <laughs> and I'd say, well, then I think you're probably, maybe you're walking with Jesus then. Because I think as you more you walk with him, the more you see yourself as a sinner and not much of a saint. But positionally, we do know in Christ, I am a saint, you know. But I would say this, what happens to the person that thinks they're a saint? Or we would call them the self-righteous person. Maybe the Pharisee. What happens to the Pharisee? Well, they reject God's wisdom for the world's. That's what these people were doing. No, he's not, he's not a Messiah. Actually, instead of repenting of their sins, what do they do? They cover their sins. 
They try to, you know, act as though their good works can somehow save them. And yet the good works are like filthy rags to God. And clearly scripture tells you you're not saved by your good works. You're saved by God's great work. So there's this struggle there. I mean, but they're covering them. If you're really not coming to Christ, you're really, your sins aren't being dealt with. Sometimes people, they go, well, I go to church, Jeremy, or I've been baptized. I'm like, well, those are all nice things, but none of those things wash away your sins. Jeremy, I've been confirmed. You know, the church confirmed me. And I'd say, well, that's nice too. But just because you can answer questions correctly does not mean internally that you have been truly born from above. So there's an element where you must reject the world's wisdom. You must not cover your sins, but actually a self-righteous person reject God's wisdom. They cover their sins. And instead of looking to Christ alone, to the Messiah, what do they do? They look to self. And actually the self-righteous in the end show themselves clearly to be sinners. Unwilling to repent. Now, as we consider that whole idea of where are you in all this? Have you ever repented of your sins? Have you ever trusted by faith in Christ alone? Because if you haven't, the truth is, it's no mistake that I'm here right now giving you the message. But as we consider this whole idea, um, I conclude with this. How many of you know the name Erwin Lutzer? Anyone know that name, Erwin Lutzer? Okay. You should be somewhat familiar with that name or get familiar with that. Actually, he's a very gifted writer. He's a preacher of the past. He's since kind of, in a sense, maybe you could say retired. He's an older age and stage in life. But actually, Erwin Lutzer said this. He said, when I became the pastor of the Moody Church, that's that church in Chicago where D.L. Moody, in a sense you could say, kind of was named after D.L. Moody. The Moody Church in 1980, he was the pastor. He said, when I became the pastor there, I knew one of the church rooms is named Harper Hall in memory of the Scottish evangelist who was on his journey to the Moody Church, but he drowned when the Titanic sank in April of 1912. So here's an evangelist named John Harper, Scottish evangelist who's on the ship. And he died. Actually, he so said this only recently, however, um, that I learned the full story of the re- this remarkable man. Harper's reputation as an evangelist was, was so well known back in that day that he was invited to speak at the Moody Church in 1910. And then he says, I have in my possession a photocopy of a letter in, my, in, his, own, in his own writing, which reads this. Harper said, I have been in Chicago for three months. God gave us a very precious and wonderful revival of continuous services each day and sometimes even more often. (laughs) Did you catch what I just read? I mean, we're here for like three days, you know, we're not, not really, you know, but this is three months. Sometimes more than one service a day for three months. Now, I'm not asking for that, Pastor, but I'm just telling you, that's pretty crazy. So he is actually on his way back. Actually, he went on to say that he had now been invited back to the Moody Church for another three months of meetings. That's what he's coming to do. That's crazy. And he's making his way on the Titanic. And it says this, so it happened, so it was that John Harper, his sister, and his six-year-old daughter found themselves on the great ship, the Titanic. Now, where's his wife? Actually, his wife, as this evangelist, his wife had passed. And so here he was with his sister and his six-year-old daughter. They're on the ship. Survivors later reported that as the Titanic began to sink, Harper admonished people to be prepared to die. He's warning people, We're gonna, you are going to die. You need to be prepared. He made sure his sister and his daughter were in a lifeboat, even as he continued to share the gospel with whoever would listen. And when he found himself in the icy water with a life jacket floating near another man, Harper asked, Are you saved? And the man, he was desperate. He replied this, No, I'm not saved. Harper shouted, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. One actually reports says Harper, knowing that he could not survive long in the icy water, he took off his life jacket, he threw it to another person with the words, you need this more than I do. And moments later, Harper disappeared beneath the water. It was four years later when there was a reunion of the survivors of the Titanic. Now you can imagine a year after the Titanic, you know, this happens, tragedy happens, and try to get people together. Are you kidding me? And they're all from different spots. So it's taken four years now, and probably people are kind of still, I mean, it's just still raw. But it says four years later, when there was a reunion of the survivors of the Titanic, um, the man to whom Harper had witnessed told the story of his rescue and gave a testimony of his conversion recorded in in a gospel track called this, I was John Harper's last convert. It's actually a gospel track actually showing here's a person in the end of his life. He's so concerned for the souls of people. Are you saved? He's saying. 
I mean, consider that. And the heartbeat of Jesus is to save. The heartbeat of God is to rescue people. If you'd humble yourself. Actually, in Matthew 11, 28 to 30, Jesus, in that same context, is saying to the crowd, Come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am meek, I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me, I'll save you. Come to me. So my question is, have you done that? And if you have done that, are we, are we really pursuing this great King of kings and Lord of lords? I sit there and think about all this. Could you imagine? This is, this is the Messiah. He's the greatest sacrifice. He's the greatest king. He's the greatest, he's the greatest prophet. I mean, everything about this. And again, how much effort do you go to pursue him? I mean, the, the Queen of Sheba just rebukes my heart. She goes months on a journey just to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And there's so much greater there. And here we are, we've got, we are so, we live in such poshness, don't we? We such, and, and, and we've, got the, we've got the Bible and we don't pursue him. And what a rebuke. May God stir our hearts. And that's, that's why we're here this week. Our prayer is, dear God, stir us, work in us, work through us. Stir you guys when it comes to the gospel. God has you here for a purpose and a reason. And he's called you here in this sense. This is where you live. And so if you're in Christ, what should you be? You should be about the gospel. May God help us all to be focused there on what God's called us to. He's the God of mercy, and he's the God of all grace. We should heed the warning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness and your goodness to us, giving us truth. I thank you for my friends here, and I ask God that you would stir our hearts. Lord, we are so easily distracted. We're so easily exhausted, and often our exhaustion is found doing our own thing. Lord, we can make ourselves busy, but busyness isn't godliness. So dear God, I pray, would you stir our hearts to draw us closer to you, Lord, for those who have not truly repented of their sins and trusted in you alone, I ask God that you would work on them and in them, that today would be the greatest day for them, that they would repent and trust in you. For those who already have done that, I pray, God, that they would pursue you and they would seek to share the good news with those around them. Lord, we look at our culture and our world and it is clearly spiraling fast. And it may be, God, maybe today um, that you would rapture your church. We don't know, but we want to live each day in light of eternity. So God, would you stir our hearts?